With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. My name is Corey Shockey. I lead the foreign and defense policy team at the American Enterprise Institute. And I have the delight today of moderating your conversation with Joe Scarborough. He's the co-host of MSNBC's Morning Joe, the author of this outstanding new book, Saving Freedom, Truman, the Cold War, and the Fight for Western Civilization. Joe spent his political career in the U.S. House of Representatives advocating for American taxpayers through economic conservatism before leaving the Congress in 2001. Since 2007, Joe, Micah Brzezinski, Willie Geist, and other journalists have pioneered discussion through their MSNBC talk show, Morning Joe, which dives into daily political conversation. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Thank you, Joe Scarborough, for joining us. Corey, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you know, I'm a historian by training, and it uh, I was intensely jealous reading this book because <laughs> so few of us historians are good popular historians, by which I mean to say effective storytellers and people who can make complicated history, not just accessible, but exciting to people. And you achieve that so wonderfully in this book. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's an extraordinary story. I mean, the story of Joe Biden is uh, Harry Truman is a lot like the story of Joe Biden. There's there's a timeliness here because like Biden with Truman, you had somebody who was constantly underestimated. He was uh, from the very start. And so, you know, I, I try to draw the readers in at the beginning by talking about what his contemporaries thought about him. And, you know, it was hard for him. This was a guy who was a failed businessman who had to beg uh, political bosses to let him run for the Senate. Uh, he, when he did run for the Senate, it was only after the first four people ahead of him decided not to run. He got to D.C., the New York Times welcomed him by calling him a rube. He worked for six years for FDR's New Deal. In 40, during his re-election campaign, FDR wouldn't even uh, campaign for him, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't endorse his, his uh, re-election. Four years later, it was a dying FDR that selected Harry Truman to be his vice president. Uh, but he did it very reluctantly. He was called the second Missouri Compromise. And, but we'll get into all of this later. Uh what he did after FDR died uh, three months in uh, to uh, his fourth term is nothing short of extraordinary. And it still shapes the world we live in today. So my favorite part of the book is the way your experience as an effective member of Congress helps you tell this story. And I want to talk a lot about that um, because it's such a rare and such a deep achievement uh, that that Harry Truman brought us to. But I want to start by asking you to do what you do so nicely in the book, which is conjure up the world of 1947 
for Americans who didn't live through it. What was what does Truman step into? Why does he begin to think that you need to overturn 150 years of American isolationism? Well, it's a great question. And uh, I, I, I must say, and maybe it's because I was in Congress, uh, served in Congress at, at a young age, I get so tired of hearing people say Washington's broken. It can never be fixed again. We'll never be able to get bipartisan compromise again. Uh, Things are worse today than they've ever been before. Well, when Harry Truman uh, got the word from the British that they could no longer uh, defend Greece and no longer defend Turkey against Soviet aggression, against Joseph Stalin's designs, um, he was having to deal with a Republican Congress that had just got elected. Democrats uh, faced a disastrous midterm election in 1946, Truman's first midterm while president. And Republicans were back in power for the first time in 14 years. Now, anybody that's read uh, the least bit uh, about FDR knows that when FDR was president, Washington was FDR's town. Uh, he he did not uh, did not care much for dissent, not only from Republicans, but from people inside his own Oval Office. And so Republicans had had enough of kowtowing to Democratic presidents over the past 14 years. And the last thing they wanted to do was to help FDR's successor um, pull them out of a position that they had. They had held uh, their their uh, entire existence, and so uh, they were Republicans for the most part were isolationists, isolationists especially in peacetime. They also had just finished World War II. Uh, it was a nation that was exhausted uh, from four we- years of war, obviously, uh, and so Harry Truman gets the message that he's got to engage a Republican House, a Republican Senate. Uh, and, and mainly um, uh, uh, the, the chairman of, of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Arthur Vandenberg from Michigan, who was traditionally an isolationist. And so Truman uh, worked, uh, first worked Vandenberg, but he also worked all the Republicans. Uh, and it was, it was, a, it was a, a constant effort to pull the Republicans in and explain to them that they could no more appease Joseph Stalin's designs on Central Europe and Western Europe uh, than uh, than Chamberlain had appeased Hitler's designs on the same region ten years earlier, and so the Republicans, for any uh, anybody that that followed the history of the mid-war period, uh, the Republicans um, after after Versailles in 1919, um, Woodrow Wilson came back and he tried to get the United States involved in the League of Nations. He had very contentious negotiations with the Republican Senate. Henry Cabot Lodge and other isolationists refused uh, to follow uh, Wilson's uh, efforts to get the United States involved in the League of Nations. And so uh, they retreated, the country retreated back into this sort of fortress America mentality, uh, which of course allowed Adolf Hitler uh, to build, uh, build his strength. And of course we know September 1st, 1939, World War II began, and we all knew the consequences of that. So it, it, so, so Truman, uh, and I think it's 
One of the reasons I go into such great detail on the legislative efforts, on the on the efforts to compromise, is because he showed how to do it. He also showed how to do it by surrounding himself with the best and the brightest of his time, the wise men, as as Walter Isaacson uh, and Evan Thomas called them. Uh, you had his secretary of state was George C. Marshall. Of course, General Marshall was the organizer of the Allies' victory in World War II. Dean Acheson was the undersecretary of state, probably the most capable uh, diplomat in in, uh, Washington, D.C. at the time. You had George Kennan, uh, who had written the famous long telegram that was the first to warn of Stalin's designs uh, on Europe. And also the need uh, for the United States to engage in a containment policy. Averill Harriman was uh, was his ambassador to the Soviet Union, uh, who knew the Soviet Union as well or better than anyone, knew Stalin well also. And so uh, it was just, it was hard work with Republicans, but also it was surrounding himself with a great team that actually allowed him to move uh, move these, ext- well, it was really, it was a revolution in foreign policy and allowed him to do that. Uh, set the stage internationally. What's going on in Greece and Turkey? Uh, why is aid so urgent in 1947? Uh, why is this such a fast-burning crisis? Well, the, because Greece has been in civil war with itself for 3,000 years, and 1947 was no different. Uh, you had a civil war uh, going on in Greece, Um uh, before World War II. Uh, and then, of course, there was a brutal Nazi occupation. Uh, the country was, was completely ravaged. Uh, and, and then the, you, you had during World War II, you actually had the communists, uh, much as they had also done in France, the communists inside of Greece actually ran a very effective resistance against the Nazis. Uh, and so um, as the war came to an end, uh, they they had they had some natural alliances in that country and some people who who uh, were may have been more prone uh, to sign up with the communists than with the government. Um, but by by forty seven the, the the war was raging and the government was losing basically losing um, losing track and uh, and you know what I what I love about what I love about the story um, that that I think was a good foreshadowing of of what other presidents would face in decisions that they had to make about the Cold War was the fact that that the Greek government. I say so what I love about it. I think what's appropriate about it is they were no angels. It was a harsh right wing government. Uh, and what I loved about Truman was he was straightforward with the Republicans. He was straightforward with the progressive Democrats who also really didn't want to confront the Soviet Union at the time as well. Uh, but he said, he basically said, the Greek government, uh, they are no angels. But but given the choice between them and Joseph Stalin, we really have no choice at all. Uh, and it was a foreshadowing of a lot of decisions uh, that American presidents had to make over the course of the four or five decades of the Cold War. You know, Henry Kissinger once said in foreign policy, you never have 
uh, a decision between the good and bad. You always have to choose the least of the two bad decisions. And that's exactly what Truman had to do in 1947. And uh, I think whether you look at the Truman Doctrine, whether you look at what we did with the Marshall Plan, whether you look at what we did with NATO, uh, he he seemed to, to make the right decision time and time again uh, in, in the years following World War II. So one of the things that's so poignant about Harry Truman is the extent to which his great achievements get overshone by other people, right? We talk so little about the Truman Doctrine and so much about the Marshall Plan. But as your book shows, you never get the Marshall Plan without the Truman Doctrine. And the grace with which Truman let Marshall own that victory, it comes through really sweetly in your book and in a way that sets up the coming confrontation they have over the state of Israel. You know, I'm so- I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I'm so glad you brought that up because we, you know, even though I, I have spent most of my lifetime reading history, every time you hear about the Marshall Plan, you thought, oh, George Marshall, well, he must have been in there and fighting and, and traveling. No, uh, it, it actually was Truman's idea to put George Marshall's name on a plan that he had very little to do with. But there already was a Truman Doctrine, and he wanted to give Marshall uh, this credit. He also knew that George—well, he respected George Marshall, actually, more than uh, just about anybody in government. And so putting the the name uh, Marshall on the Marshall Plan helped do something that was really revolutionary, really radical for the United States of America in peacetime— in 1947, you had talked about it uh, at the beginning, but going back to George Washington, uh, the United States had had done everything that they could do. Presidents had done everything they could do to follow Washington's advice in his farewell address, and that was to avoid foreign entanglements. And so, to not only get engaged uh, with the possibility of of military confrontation with the Soviet Union, who had just been our close ally two years before, but to also have that massive of an aid package in peacetime to rebuild Europe was a truly extraordinary thing. Uh, but but they did it. And to the Republicans' credit, the Republicans actually followed along Um and supported the Marshall Plan as well. Again, I say to the Republicans' credit, because again, not only were they isolationists, but most of the voters they represented were isolationists. And the Republicans had got elected in 1946. It really, it really was, uh, it was really a 180 compared to what happened in Great Britain. Winston Churchill, of course, the conservative, guides the British through World War II, and and after saving Western civilization himself in 1940 during the Battle of Britain and getting the British to believe that they could stand alone against Nazi tyranny. Um, In 1945, uh, the British people uh, actually kicked him out for a socialist, Clement Attlee. Uh, And one of my one of my favorite uh, Churchill stories was the night that he found out that he had lost Um, his wife. 
uh, Clementine said, well, dear, maybe it's a blessing in disguise. And Churchill said, well, if it's a if it is a blessing in disguise, it's one of the most well-disguised blessings in the history of mankind. Uh, so they traded a conservative for a socialist in America. Americans actually traded uh, a liberal Democrat uh, for uh, and a liberal Congress for a conservative Congress in 1946. They wanted a return to normalcy. They wanted to put uh, the big spending behind them. They wanted uh, to put uh, the problems of Europe behind them. So they elected a conservative Republican Congress who promised less spending domestically and less spending across the globe. One year later, well, actually in February of 47, so about four months after the election, Harry Truman had to go to these same Republicans and say, I know what you promised your constituents. I know what you've you've campaigned for your entire life, but we actually have uh, a much bigger issue here. And it was, of course, Arthur Vandenberg, uh, who the the, the Senate uh, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee from Michigan, who famously had first said that politics should stop at the water's edge. And to his credit and to the Republicans' credit, uh, that's exactly what they did. So... Um... One of the fascinating insights you have in the book is that Truman succeeded at what Woodrow Wilson failed at. And one of the reasons the book is so powerful is you make clear how little reason there was to believe Truman was a man who had the skills who could do this. What is it that Truman understands? You make a good case in the book that because he was a creature of the Senate, he understood the the value and the practice of it. What else? I mean, he didn't have anywhere near the kind of political base that you would have thought could produce the leverage to get this done in Congress. So tell the story of how he weaves this magic, because it really is a Herculean achievement. Well, you know, Harry Truman had quite a few things going for him. Um and, and his relationship in the Senate, his relationships in the Senate certainly was one of them. Another one was he was very plain spoken. Uh, the people who had worked with him knew that if Harry Truman had a problem with you, uh, he would let you know. Uh, as the music critic for the Washington Post famously learned after he wrote a negative review of uh, Truman's daughter's singing, uh, <laughs> a very harsh uh, attack. Uh, but but Truman Truman was plain spoken. Uh, it's one thing he had going for him. Uh, he also believed, you know, he he put it on his desk. He believed it in his heart. The buck stops here, and so he had no problem making difficult decisions and taking responsibility for those decisions. And so uh, Truman actually, uh, people that knew Truman said he always slept better at night after he'd made a tough, difficult decision where he knew he was right. Uh, and that's one of the, that's another great gift that Harry Truman had. He he wasn't hedging his bets. He he would do what was right. And if he had a problem, if if there was a crisis with Stalin, if there was a crisis in Europe, uh, he could actually sit down uh, with Arthur Vandenberg and other Republicans in the Senate 
and tell them what the problem was. And he had actually built up um, built up a, a bank of trust with them. I think one of the more extraordinary things about the vote on the Truman Doctrine was that he even got Mr. Republican Robert Taft, who was an avowed isolationist and had been since his experiences post-World War I, um, to, to vote along with him too. So I, I think I think that has a lot to do with it. Uh, but but I, I again, I guess because I, I'm a creature of Congress and was there when I was young and have followed it closely through the years, I just don't think you can you can um, over uh, uh, estimate how important it was that he he had positive relationships with people inside of Congress. He knew how Congress worked. It reminds me of those old LBJ tapes when when those tapes got released and you had LBJ harassing poor subcommittee chairman and uh, of of like these uh, House subcommittees who nobody ever called. Even the chairman of the committees wouldn't call uh, these subcommittee members. But LBJ knew exactly where the bills were. He'd pick up the phone and he'd harangue them and he'd say, hey, get it out of your subcommittee. I need to get it up to the committee. Then we need to need to get it on the floor. And that's something, again, that Harry Truman uh, had as well. Um, and I do think, too, I, I hear all the time, oh, we're not going to be able to get anything done in, in, in Washington over the next four years. I just, I don't believe that. I, I do think that because Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden have worked together for decades, I do think uh, that uh, both of both of these men, uh, despite the fact that they they both have been partisans uh, throughout their careers, both of these men know that politics is the art of the possible. Uh, you have six, seven, eight uh, moderates uh, that are willing to compromise right now uh, on a COVID relief bill, and will be willing to compromise on health care and a lot of other issues, immigration coming up. I think we're actually going to get get to, to, to watch uh, Washington work fairly well over the next couple of years. But it only works when Republicans and Democrats work together. Uh, and that's certainly what happened with Harry Truman. You have a, a chapter in the book that takes my favorite U.S. government executive branch uh, management philosophy, which is the people are the policy, right? Personnel is policy. Um, And the most interesting character that I knew the least about that I learned about in your book is General Van Fleet. And I love the way you describe how the the way Truman had an eye for who's the right person to put in this position, right? He's getting all this pressure to choose a Greek-American to administer aid to Greece, and he rightly understands that that will narrow its aperture and create the uh, suspicion of um, uh, corruption in the process. And then he pays such careful attention to who the military uh, appointees should be. Talk about Van Fleet, because he he figures so prominently in your story. He really he really does. And you are right. Harry Truman got pressure uh, from outside sources to consider appointing a a Greek-American to that position. 
And as you said, uh, he he stayed away from that because he thought uh, that it could cause complications. Uh, and so he put the general in charge uh, and it was uh, slow going for a while. Uh, but but as they moved forward, uh, Truman saw that there was progress being made uh, in Greece. Um, and I, I thought one of the more interesting parts of the story was there was a diplomat in Greece uh, that actually tried to bump Van Fleet. Uh, and uh, I believe it was George Marshall that came to Truman and, and, and said, just let him stay there, let him do the job, and he'll make sure that we win this war. And what I, what I really, uh, what I learned the most about Harry Truman uh, in this book was the fact that Truman put really good people in place, that personnel was policy. Truman put really good people in place, and then he trusted them. Um, I remember five years ago, maybe during the campaign, uh, Donald Trump, who Meek and I had known for a uh, you know, we've known for about 15, 15 years. The last four years have been longer than the first 11. Uh, but I remember he had just said something uh, shocking and he came on our show the next day. And I said, Donald, um, who do you know close to you that that's a good advisor that you can listen to and whose advice you can take um, whenever you have to make a tough decision? Because I know uh, I had three people when I was a 31-year-old member of Congress, and my rule was if these three people told me not to do something, I didn't do it. I would sit there and I would have to convince them. I always, I told my chief of staff early on, I got there, I was young, I didn't know anybody in Washington. I called in my chief of staff and I said, I've hired you because you know, speaking of personnel, you've been in Washington, you know the best people to get. And I said, your job is to make me the dumbest guy in the room in every meeting we have. And he laughed and I said, well, it's not going to be that easy, but make me, I, I always need to be learning. I always have to have smart people around me. I always need people uh, to help guide me. Um, I, what I found with Truman reading this uh, in, in researching this book and writing this book is that Truman did, in, in effect, the same thing. He kept the best people around him. A lot of them were holdovers from FDR, but he kept the best people around him. And when they came and gave him advice, as you saw in the book, Atchison would draft something up. Uh, Henderson would draft something. They would bring it over, and Truman would read it and say, okay, get it done, and hand it back to him. And that's, that's what I really appreciated about Harry Truman uh, and his decision-making is that he didn't think he was the smartest guy in the room. Um, and I will say this, and I know I always get in trouble when I say this, uh, um, <clears throat> um, but we've had two presidents now in a row who have always thought they were the smartest guys in the room. Uh, and I only say that because I knew quite a few people who worked for President Obama. They were in President Obama's cabinet, a lot of Democratic senators, senior senators, who said he always believed he was the smartest guy in the room. Uh, that is, he, he's a brilliant guy, but you just never want a president who's always thinking they're smarter than the generals, they're smarter than the diplomats, they're smarter uh, than the economic advisors. You want a president who takes in information and is willing to defer 
And that's something that that Truman was able to do. And I'm not so sure that our three presidents in the 21st century were quite as good at doing it. Let's talk about the break between Marshall and Truman, because it's my actual favorite part of the book, the chapter (laughs) on uh, the creation of the state of Israel. And I love the way you use diary entries from both Truman and Marshall to capture the depth of the bitterness they felt these two men who had accomplished so much together and Mm -hmm. had so much, um, uh, had so much more work ahead of them. Why is the recognition of Israel such a bitter break and how do they get past it? Well, that was really shocking, wasn't it? I, I mean, especially General Marshall's diary entry. So, so Harry Truman uh, had been considering the recognition of Israel, um, but the State Department was uh, violently against it. Uh, Harriman was uh, against it. Uh, um, Marshall was against it. Um, Everybody. Everybody. Ambassador Clifford at the UN was shocking. Oh, oh my gosh! It was they, they were. Uh, it 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 really was Harry Truman. I had, I just said that Harry Truman, in most instances, would defer to the people around him, but in this case, uh, George Marshall uh, and the State Department believed uh, uh, Dean Acheson believed this would be a nightmare. Uh, for the United States foreign policy. It would be disastrous in the Middle East. One of their concerns at the time was that uh, the Soviet Union and Stalin had designs not only on Turkey and Greece, but also on Iran, because they needed uh, the oil in Iran. And so Marshall tried to explain that if we recognized an independent state of Israel, uh, that it would have severe consequences for the United States, that the Arab world would turn on us in an instant, uh, and that we would be handing the Soviet Union a great advantage. Um, and uh, Truman listened, uh, but it, it's very interesting uh, that we always hear that he he was uh, a, a fail, failed haberdasher. Uh, well, his partner uh, in in that effort um, Eddie Jacobson had come to the White House and he actually lobbied him. They'd known him all the years, had known him since World War I when they fought together. Um, and he lobbied him uh, to support Israel, to, 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 uh, to weigh in. Uh, Truman gave his word and Truman was not going to back down from that word. But you you talk about the diary entries, and uh, it was obvious reading Truman's diaries that he was he was almost heartbroken uh, to be uh, to be in the sort of conflict that he was in with George Marshall because he respected Marshall uh, more than any other uh, person in Washington D.C. Uh, but but Marshall was uh, Marshall was was so concerned about this policy that he went home and wrote in his diary uh, that he did not vote in elections, but if he did vote in elections, and if Harry Truman followed through with this recognition of Israel, 
that he would vote against Harry Truman in the next election, uh, which you read it and it jumps off the page. You think about everything that these two leaders had been through over the past several years, and it really was shocking. But, but, Trump, but Truman followed through, and it took him all of 11 minutes after the recognition of, of Israel for the United States to recognize Israel as well. Uh, and that guaranteed uh, that guaranteed the existence of Israel. We are getting an avalanche of great questions. So I'm going to resist my temptation to selfishly keep talking about the book with you and start asking questions. The first one up is, was the election of Dwight Eisenhower in 1952 a repudiation of Truman's term or something else? Well, I think Dwight Eisenhower would have beaten anybody uh, in the political landscape at that time. He was so extraordinarily popular and he was a great politician. Uh, we, we, we talked about Ike on the show a couple of days ago. And he was the only guy who was so confident that he would tell aides before he went out for press conferences. He basically said, don't worry, I'll pretend I don't know what I'm talking about. They'll get confused and they'll go on. Uh, Ike knew how to play the press. He knew how to play uh, sort of the affable leader. Um, he had a 65% approval rating all eight years of his presidency. That's unmatched, I think. It was an extraordinary presidency. And I measure it, uh, I measure just how extraordinary it was by how Kennedy ran his campaign and how critics of Eisenhower uh, termed the 1950s as boring. I will take boring peace and prosperity uh, over what happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and in the past 20 years, any day of the week. But no, Ike was was just an extraordinarily popular person who uh, most Americans considered to be uh, the guy that that helped uh, win World War II. Um, but also, Harry Truman was unpopular. He he uh, he was was mired in an unpopular war in Korea, um, and um, he had made some some decisions that had split the Democratic Party in 1948 against uh, against a lot of AIDS recommendations, and also in a surprise to just about everybody that knew him. Uh, he integrated the armed forces, uh, something that was way ahead of its time in 1948 and not popular uh, with a lot of Democrats in his own party, the progressives in his own party, uh, people like Henry Wallace uh, uh, didn't like Truman. They thought he was too conservative. Republicans, of course, had had enough of Democrats in the White House. So when he, when he took that long, lonely train ride home to Independence, Missouri, he had a 22% approval rating, the lowest approval rating for any president who ever left office. And I actually look at that number uh, as, as actually a monument uh, to, to Harry Truman's courage because he made one tough decision after another, did not worry about the political consequences of those decisions. Uh, and yes, uh, he was mocked and ridiculed by people in his own party, also in the Republican Party. His mother-in-law uh, wasn't even respectful to him uh, at, at all, even though he let her live in the White House. 
Um, and yet, uh, Winston Churchill, a great hero of mine, uh, said of Harry Truman, uh, of all of all men, uh, no one has done more to save Western civilization than Harry Truman. Uh, so I think I could go home uh, after being in the White House for eight years uh, and and tune out most of the other criticism, even from my mother-in-law, uh, if Winston Churchill had said <laughs> more than anybody else, I'd save Western civilization. Yeah, that's a mighty nice compliment. One other thing I might add about the election of uh, 1952 is that it was a repudiation of Robert Taft and the isolationists. So Eisenhower represented a continuity of Truman's foreign policy, at least. In a way, he had to, it took a politician that popular to bring Republicans to cement among Republicans a belief in the Truman Doctrine. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. And that brings up another thing that I, I say in the first page of my book, which is when I got to Congress, I was, you know, a small government conservative. Uh, even members of my own caucus thought I was a little too intense at times. Um, but I had two presidential portraits on my wall. One, of course, was of Ronald Reagan, uh, just because. But the other was of Harry Truman. And people would always come in and say, OK, we get the Reagan. What, what about Harry Truman? And I said, well, Harry Truman put a policy in place that helped us win the Cold War. And I thought it was extraordinary that the nine presidents, uh, from Harry Truman to George H.W. Bush, uh, they put their country uh, above their party. And you're right. There was that that continuous line from Truman uh, through Ike. Uh, through Kennedy, LBJ, and all the way through George Reagan and George H.W. Bush, um, where they stayed engaged in the world. Of course, there were uh, twists and turns. There was, you know, Nixon's detente, uh, Reagan uh, taking a more confrontational approach. Um, but, but for the most part, they followed the same policy that Truman set in place. So that's a great point. You're right. That was a repudiation of, of Republican isolationism. Next question is, do you see any potential Senator Vandenberg or Senator Taft among the current Republican members of the Senate? Well, you know, I actually I think there's safety in numbers. Um, a lot of a lot of Republicans were afraid to, to stand out on their own over the past four years. But you, you look at uh, Mitt Romney, uh, Lisa Murkowski. Susan Collins on the Republican side have all said they want to work together with Democrats. They want to let Joe Biden appoint who he wants to appoint to the cabinet so long as they're uh, not uh, too outside of the mainstream. And then on the Democratic side, uh, Mark Kelly just got elected from it, it still is a Republican state, the Republican state of Arizona. Uh, Kristen Cinema, also from Arizona, is going to be looking for opportunities for a bipartisan uh, compromise. Uh, Governor Hickenlooper, when he becomes senator for Colorado, will be in the same position. Of course, the bane of all uh, progressive Democrats' existence, Joe Manchin, always looking for a deal. Pat Toomey uh, has announced he's not going to be running for re-election. Pat, a guy that I've known also, uh, was also a, a really good uh, small government conservative, but he was willing to compromise, uh, make uh, compromise with with Democrats as well at times. So 
I think we're going to have uh, a good coalition in the center. And I, I'll throw out another name who uh, I, a guy I've known since 1994, who I've been especially hard on over the past four years on my show, but just knowing him, Lindsey, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham is always, always ready to make a deal with a guy who's in charge. Uh, he liked John McCain when McCain got the nomination. He liked Donald Trump when Donald Trump was president. Uh, and I think most people have probably seen the clip of Lindsey uh, talking about Joe Biden starting to tear up, uh, talking about how what a great American he was and how much he loved him. I suspect you'll find a few people like Lindsey Graham who who may surprise all of us and be willing to work uh, for bipartisan efforts, especially especially on the international stage, because while people like Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham have bitten their tongue for the most part and 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 followed uh, President Trump on foreign policy matters, there is no doubt that that Lindsey, Marco and a good number of Republicans are far more comfortable with Joe Biden's view of NATO, Joe Biden's view of of our democratic alliances across uh, the world uh, than they were with Donald Trump. So I, yeah, I, I'm again, I'm I'm optimistic. Maybe I'm being Pollyannish, but I don't think so. So the next question is more of a domestic policy question. So it's outside the confines of the book, but you know, such a wide sweep about Truman that I'm gonna uh, let the let the question come across anyway, which is Harry Truman was an early proponent of government-supported health care in America. Do you think he gets enough credit from modern-day Democrats for helping to start the long march towards Obamacare? No, no, but you you pointed it out at the very beginning. Harry Truman really doesn't doesn't get much credit uh, from from most 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 Americans. Uh, a lot of people who picked up the book said, boy, I've read a lot of presidential uh, biographies, but I just haven't read that much on Truman. Of course, David McCullough wrote an absolute masterpiece on Harry Truman. What was that, 30 years ago? But that's about 30, 35, 40 years ago. Uh, and it really is. It is the indispensable biography on Harry Truman. But most people just haven't been made aware of of all the things that Truman did. But I will say when he left, uh, he was considered a failure as a president. But most historians, even before McCullough's biography, were looking back at Truman's presidency and said, well, you know, he was he was a very good president. Uh, And then he started moving into the near great category. And now most historians I talk to say, well, near great are great because no president over the past 75 years has impacted America's foreign policy more than Harry Truman. Um, uh, and I think, I, I don't know, you're, you, you, you certainly, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on that. Uh, do we still, do we still basically live in Harry Truman's world, at, at least uh, on the international stage? I think we actually do, right? Because what Truman understood uh, that, that Wilson had initially suggested that, you know, the way to take Americans out into the world, to get us to care about the shape of other people's outcomes, really is American values. And what, what Wilson theorized 
Truman was actually a good enough politician to make happen, which is to make an international order that was a macrocosm of America's domestic political order, where self-determination was how you came to, to create a political community, and that violence couldn't be the answer, that the protective uh, rules of the international order were rules that would make the United States safer and more prosperous. But because we didn't wring every last ounce of advantage out of it, it was also the best set of rules for countries that were medium-sized powers or small powers. So it created an international order where people where countries opted in voluntarily, they obeyed the rules because the rules were more in their interest than any other outcome. And I think no president before Donald Trump ever failed to believe that was true. And one of the things I think you see, for example, in the surveys of public attitudes done by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs in the last five years, is that what what candidate and then President Trump were brilliant at was asking first order questions. Why don't allies do more? Doesn't trade export American jobs? And what we have seen is that the policies he enacted, the American public thought the question was interesting, but they don't like his answer. Right. And, and, and right now I, I, that's I, a great point. And, uh, it's a fair question to ask. What are we getting out of this? We should always be asking, what are we getting out of this? And I think it's Joe, it's the responsibility of Joe Biden and it's the responsibility of Republicans and Democrats alike who believe that the United States, like I believe, is, an, is the indispensable uh, power uh, on the globe still. And I would say especially now. Uh, and, and when we don't lead, you see what happens and, and you see what happens even in Europe. You see what happens in Hungary. You see what happens in Poland. You see what happens across the world. You see an erosion of democratic values. You see an erosion of the rule of law. You see an erosion of the very things uh, that that not only Harry Truman, but uh, again, Arthur Vandenberg and others uh, wanted wanted the United States to influence globally. And so it's it's good to ask those questions. It's good to ask uh, why we're doing. But I think Joe Biden and I, I think Republicans and Democrats alike who believe that the United States does play a vital role in the world, we need to be able to explain to the American people that, yes, like, for instance, the Marshall Plan. Yes, we spent billions of dollars on the Marshall Plan. Guess what it did? It rebuilt the economies of Western and Central Europe. And that helped usher in the American century. If you look at America's GDP from 1947 forward, compare it to every other country. And I'm such a nerd. I, I, I have done that uh, regularly. You look at our GDP. You look at the GDP of other nations or other allies. They're always ups and downs with the other countries. Ours just goes straight up. And the reason why is we invested in our friends. We invested in our allies. We looked outside of ourselves and we had leaders, Republicans and Democrats alike, who actually understood uh, that, 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 uh, that freer markets and freer men and women uh, actually would not only be the right thing to do morally, uh, but also the right thing to do economically. And it is pay our, our 
so-called generosity has paid us back, uh, not tenfold, but hundreds and thousands fold. One of the things, I think my favorite thing about your book, Joe, is the way that you conjure up how scary the world felt and how much um, the people who built this international order, the people who envisioned the Truman Doctrine and made it American policy and made it the international order that we still benefit from today. They didn't do it out of arrogance. They didn't do it out of, you know, uh, faculty lounge liberalism. They did it because they wanted a world that was safer, more predictable, and more prosperous than the world they had lived in from 1915 to 1945. This was yeah. their insurance policy. It, it was. And, and uh, early on, I talk about Harry Truman uh, being briefed on the refugee crisis across Western Europe. And it was the greatest refugee crisis uh, in, in modern history. And there were, you had, you had countries that were leveled. You had millions of refugees uh, that were starving. And what did Harry Truman do? He called in Herbert Hoover, uh, the disgraced ex-Republican president who had been a punchline in every Democratic campaign over the past, uh, the, over the 14 years before Truman called him into his office. And uh, Truman called him in uh, and, and said, I need your help. We have a refugee crisis. You are an engineer. You helped, uh, you helped with this after World War I. I need your help now. And I thought what Herbert Hoover said to Harry Truman uh, really is, is in line with what you just said. Uh, and, and that was that, I mean, there was, uh, we were doing it because it was the right thing to do, but there was also sort of a hard-headed approach to it too, where Herbert Hoover let Harry Truman know that uh, a, a person who in, in Europe, a person who is starving in Europe is a person who is more prone to becoming a communist, more prone to becoming a radical, more prone to align, uh, aligning themselves with Stalin, the Soviet Union, communism. Uh, and so, yes, uh, together, Harry Truman and Herbert Hoover worked to, to feed those millions of refugees and uh, alleviate their suffering. But you're right. Uh, this wasn't a faculty lounge discussion. Uh, this was, this was, this was uh, American. Uh, it was, it was uh, American generosity with a, a pretty healthy dose of of realism sprinkled in. Another thing I really like about the book is the way that you demonstrate that this enormous American effort of the Truman Doctrine and its implementation succeeded right away and we still kept doing it because we understood what the you know the immediate purpose was to prevent Stalin and the advance of communism from taking advantage of the Greek civil war but then they also started to see all of what you were just saying about the Marshall plan so it wasn't the initial impetus but they realized they had a winning formula and that that's what could make an American international order different from the international order any other great power had created. 
because it, it had an anchor of values that was magnetic for others. We weren't just our power. We were also our values. Yeah, and and I love that that Republican chairman Arthur Vandenberg recognized that early on and said this shouldn't just be about Greece and Turkey. This should be about the United States guaranteeing freedom across the world. So we have only about ten minutes left, and still a queue of questions. Um, so let me try and plow through a few of them. One: Why was Eisenhower so ungracious to Truman after he won the election? It's a very good question. Uh, as somebody who admires Eisenhower and has, has spent uh, my adult life reading biographies of Ike, um, it's it's hard to say. They 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 were very competitive. I could understand why Truman was resentful of Eisenhower, but I never understood why Eisenhower was so chilly uh, to uh, to Truman. But if you read. Uh, uh, a book uh, by Larry Tai called, I think it was called Ike and Dick, uh, talking about very complicated relationship between Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. Uh, he was chilly to Nixon, too. Uh, when I, when Nixon was in the Oval Office and heard that Eisenhower cried, he broke down or, or that Eisenhower died. Uh, Nixon broke down and, and wept bitterly. And those who knew him said he wept bitterly because it, it was like losing a father before the father had told him, you know, that he loved him and he was proud of him. He could never please Eisenhower. He always felt like he was on the outside. Even Eisenhower's own son uh, had said that uh, his father was uh, 50%, something along the lines of, you know, 50% uh, lovable, 50% cold-hearted. Then he thought uh, a second later, goes, well, make that 75% cold-hearted. So he he was a tough guy. I do think there is a big gap between the geniality of the public Eisenhower um, and the emotional withholdingness of interpersonal Eisenhower. And that may be actually what made him so effective, um, but but I could see why it would be hurtful. So we have two great questions about the contemporary applications of your work and contemporary conservatism. The first is, do you think the Republican Party will be able to rebuild and recenter after this election? What gives you the most hope and what worries you the most? Well, I mean, what worries me the most is the fact that most Republicans have remained silent during this transition period. Uh, while the president of the United States has been spreading conspiracy theories that undermine Americans' confidence uh, in the democratic process in a way that the Russians uh, have always wanted to do but have never been able to to do so successfully. I'm concerned about the fact that the last two weeks of the campaign, you had the Republican president calling for uh, the arrest of his Democratic opponent uh, and, and, and pressuring the attorney general to do that, didn't do it. And the Republicans remain silent. And so I am, you know, it's easy for me to, to, to say that I, I think the Republicans can never rebound from this, but I thought the Republicans were uh, going to uh, pay a heavy price for this in 2016. I was wrong. I thought they were going to pay a heavy price for this in 2018. I was right. I thought they were going to be a heavy price for this in 2020. I was wrong again because the Republicans had, if you're in the legislative branch, Republicans had an extraordinary night, uh, especially in the House of Representatives. Um, and so um, I think they can rebound 
but there has to be uh, a, a course correction. And I do think, uh, I think it needs to, to, to not just start on the international stage, but there are a lot of issues domestically they need to take care of. And this, the question is right now, uh, are they going to be able to speak truth, not to power, but are they going to be able to speak truth to their own base right now? They're afraid to even tell the people who voted for them uh, that Donald Trump lost the election. That's deeply uh, troubling to me. The next related question is, do you think civil unrest during the transition of power can be averted, given that many are already convinced of Trump's election narrative? I do. I, and I've always felt that I felt this, you know, Morning Joe always worked because Mika would usually take the liberal line and I would usually take the conservative line. And so we disagreed. And I think people liked seeing that uh, every day. Uh, we have been um, very boring over the past four years in that we've both been deeply concerned about the breaching of constitutional norms and the breaching of political norms uh, over the past four years. But one of the areas where we did disagree was um, was whether the institutions would hold up. I said from the day Donald Trump got elected, our, our institutions are strong. Madisonian democracy is strong. And I said, I don't know if any of you have ever been in front of a federal judge, but I have. And there's as a lawyer and and, uh, you know, when my when my client said, let's go into federal court, he said, well, why don't we just go into state court? It'd be much better. You And, and we saw that early on. I, I think the federal judges have done an extraordinary job um, um, making sure that the 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 checks and balances that our founders put in place uh, in the Constitution uh, remained uh, stronger than ever. Um, and so I am I am optimistic. I, I also um, I also am a little skeptical of the polls that say like 98 percent of the people think this elect Republicans think this election was stolen from from Donald Trump. I I think uh, most Republicans that I talked to, the same Republicans, my friends and family members who all said they were going to vote for Donald Trump, um, despite the fact he accused me of being a murderer like 12 times. I still can't figure that one out. Uh, but the same uh, Republican friends and family members uh, that told me they were going to vote for Donald Trump, they all know Joe Biden won the race. And, uh, you know, I I this is where I always drive Mika crazy. I, I, I think we're I think we're going to be fine. We're going to get through this transition. Joe Biden's going to be president. And uh, we just may actually see Republicans and Democrats working together on on some legislation moving forward. So one of the most hopeful signs for me, both of the uh, of this contested election period is how many Republican states attorney general, how many Republican governors, how many um, have been the bulwarks against the, how many Republican federal judges have been bulwarks against the president's um, storyline that the election wasn't lost. I mean, the president's one for 39 in court cases on the election. And those have predominantly been in front of Republican judges. So it not only assures me that that my fellow Republicans are a bulwark against the corrosion 
of the constitutional and Madisonian order, but also the people who worry about the political um, leanings of judges, for example, underestimate the extent to which they're just judges and they follow the law. Time and again over the past four years, uh, Republican appointed judges have held uh, a Republican president's worst instincts in check time and time again. And so, uh, again, I, I, I look back over the past four years and uh, while I've been very concerned about a lot of things that have happened, uh, I, I, I've been I just felt blessed that the rule of law. Uh, which really is the cornerstone of our constitutional republic that the rule of law has has held in place uh, and that it's holding in place right now. (laughs) And like you said, I mean, the Republican judges have been ruling against some of of the the more bizarre claims. And my God, the uh, the Trump appointed judge uh, who I uh, uh, this past week delivered one of the harshest assessments about the conspiracy, the unfounded conspiracy theories and about the lack of evidence that Trump's lawyers uh, had brought forward. So, again, that's a good sign. That's a good sign, whether it's Democratic, uh, democratically appointed judges standing up to Democratic presidents or Republican appointed uh, judges standing up to Republican presidents. It shows uh, how strong Madisonian democracy still is. So in closing, we got one question that I'm going to actually answer because I want to do it in praise of your terrific book, Joe. The question was, since you mentioned David McCullough, can you speak to the differences between academic history and popular history? Um, And one of the things I've heard David McCullough say is that the hard part about writing history is that the people who lived it don't know how it comes out. And academic historians, very often, we make it sound, we make the outcome sound predetermined, that there are structural factors that constrain the actors, or that, you know, Winston Churchill was so amazing that he alone. Um, And what you do so beautifully in this book is conjure up the uncertainty in which real policymakers and real legislators had to take risks and the consequences of being wrong were enormous and they didn't know if they were doing enough. It, it makes the book read like a thriller. And as a serious historian reading it, I was so impressed with the tradecraft with which you write history. And this is what popular history can give us. It's not unserious. Your book's incredibly serious, but it also reads like something I'd love to read on an airplane because I'm being propelled by the power of a story. So that's the difference between them. We academic historians too often are poor storytellers or don't even try. We just vomit everything we know onto an unsuspecting reader. And what Joe Scarborough has done is tell a riveting story about people who are trying their best in a circumstance of deep uncertainty. I hope you'll read the book, my friends. My goodness. I need I need to take you out on the book tour with me. That is very, very, very kind of you. And I, I don't feel quite so bad about the five or six uh, uh, edits I went through, again, just to try to strip it down 
and try to make it more readable. I, I really appreciate you saying that. That's very kind. On behalf of the Commonwealth Club of California, thank you for coming to share your book with us. Um, I believe there are uh, other programs coming up, but I am uh, so sorry. I'm out of time from praising your book. So you, please, my friends, go to the Commonwealth Club website to look up our coming programs. They are interesting, important, and I love this community. Thank you, Joe Scarborough. Thank you, Commonwealth Club of California. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.